Like all bodies recovery, we give a platform for people to share their views and experiences freely. This sometimes means that people will express opinions that don't align with those of all bodies recovery. We hope you will bear this in mind and if you're concerned about any of the content that you've heard in the podcast, please get in touch. Hello and welcome back to another All Bodies Recovery podcast with Jeanette and also with Emma. Yeah, and we're um, really excited today to be talking with Reverend Kate Hartford, who is a university chaplain who has mental health experiences and is going to be talking more about those um, with us today. So thank you so much for, for joining us, Kate. Thank you for having me. Um. Perhaps do you want to just start by um, speaking about your um, kind of, you know, initial experiences in terms of mental health and mm. perhaps when you first sought um, help? Yeah, I think it's hard to remember exactly when I first started um, trying to get help around food in particular because things partly because things merge when they're adolescent memories and partly because everything's always been quite jumbled up as as it is in everybody's experience you know we often separate out eating disorders from other kinds of mental health experience but it's as holistic as everything else it's all interconnected Mm -hmm. I was probably about 16 or 17 Uh, before I started recognising that some of my behaviours would be considered eating disorders. Um, Whereas um, before then, they were characterised a lot more by overconsumption, which I saw as a character flaw, (laughs) not not as something that people could work with me and support me through. Um, You know, if you grow up reading things like Enid Wrighton and Roald Dahl, you grow up believing that people who um heavy inverted commas can't control their eating are people who are sort of morally weak and uh bankrupt as it were um so i probably really was in my late teens and i think it was the intervention of a teacher who recognized that things had got a little bit dangerous in some of my habits um whilst we were away on a school trip that probably meant i eventually did start to get help but because there were always other symptoms present that I don't know, I guess felt more pressing to the mental health system. Um, I say that as if the system has its own thoughts. Um, the therapist I was working with would often prioritize other um, other symptoms or other aspects of whatever condition I was being diagnosed with at the time. Um, I wasn't treated for an eating disorder until I was in my 30s in the last five years. Wow. Um, and so oh, my goodness. Gosh, yeah, it's a huge amount of time to go to be experiencing, you know, these, you know, struggles and to go all that time without having it. Um, and when you say, like, the other kind of issues were, mm. you know, prioritised, was it um, that essentially like if you were speaking with a therapist, they would just kind of change the subject or was it a difficulty getting a diagnosis or like what did that kind of look like? I think so. Um, so the other things that were present when I was younger, um, by the time I was accessing therapeutic support, um, there was I was quite regularly engaging in self-harming behaviors um, or presenting with suicidal thoughts and it it isn't necessarily wrong that those things felt more pressing or that a lot of time was perhaps spent on them um, but I was aware that sort of every time I was well enough to move on from therapy I never felt like I dealt with any of the underlying um, relationships I had with with food and body image Um, It was usually once I had stopped appearing to be an immediate risk to myself, um, therapy would end and it would be back to GP and medication and muddling through. Um, And I'm not really sure why that is. It it may be because restriction was never a very significant part of my eating history. Um, And I think, I mean, I think binge eating disorder didn't exist in the DSM for most of the time I'm talking about. 
And so the other thing was that if I wasn't purging, then it, inverted commas, wasn't an eating disorder. And we're back to this thing about lack of willpower. Um, and it's just it's just another thing that I have to deal with. You know, we've, we've done the therapy. You're not presenting at A&E on a regular basis. So you can leave therapy now. Your relationship with food is, is for you to sort out. Um, nobody was ever that blunt, but on reflection, that's how it feels like it was going. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds like it was really kind of, you know, trivialized and 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 you know and minimized. And I think you you know you're right when you're saying like these messages and stuff. They start so young, don't they? In terms of children's books and mm. films, and you know, it's really quite scary, isn't it? How how soon those things um you know sneak in and you know Jeanette you've got you know sort of young children if there's something that you're you know you you notice a lot that you know is in kind of children's you know literature and 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 things I think it's I think with I find with my children um especially like obviously I've got my baby boy and I've got the two girls my eldest one I I have been watching a lot more of what she's been kind of taken in because she's mm. so much more curious and much more aware about the world and what's going on wants to know everything at the moment and I find that like obviously anti-fatness and ableism and all of these things really sneak in there in into so many children's programs and um, I think what I've been doing at the moment is having a lot of conversations with my five-year-old to talk about it so she can kind of be a bit more critical about what she's seeing rather than actually hiding I kind of want to put her in a bubble mm. <laughs> I want to put her in a bubble and protect her from all of this stuff but a bubble isn't going to help her ultimately I need to be having conversations and talking to her about all of these kinds of things and it is something that I think a lot of parents really worry about especially when um obviously um, you have your own experiences with disordered eating and eating mm. disorders. I think you're even more acutely aware of, you know, the stuff that's going on around you and how much it can have such a huge impact. I mean, Kate, that's, mm. it's been a long time you've had to live like that. So would you, how are you feeling yourself now? Better. Um, I mean, the, the, the most significant turning point for me, and I'm starting to hear this from a lot, of particularly women or people who were socialized as women my age um was that i had an adhd diagnosis about 12 months ago and starting medication for that which interestingly is commonly not not in the uk i don't think but in the us um some adhd medication is a licensed for binge eating disorder yeah. um the controlling the dopamine has been the thing that has really worked and um there are nutritionists um, on Instagram, mostly. I haven't been able to speak to anyone who specialises in, in ADHD. But there are folk on, um, on Instagram who specialise in ADHD and nutrition who say that it's a known link, that, I mean, you know, food feeds our dopamine receptors, ADHD, uh, amongst other things, um, affects how you uh, take in and process dopamine, as I understand it. And it's it's another of a number of different things that were in some ways missed that actually could have pointed to ADHD when I was much younger. But um, a little bit like binge eating disorder not existing, ADHD in girls didn't exist when I was a kid. Obviously that's a lie. Uh, both those things existed, but they didn't exist in the book. So they didn't count. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just like, oh my God. Mm. Like, imagine if they actually you know, actually realised that much, you know, a long time ago and actually put two and two together and, you know, you actually got the diagnosis and the treatment and the help that you really needed at that time. I mean, obviously that that's that hasn't been happening in general. I mean, no. we know that everything isn't, you know, funding hasn't been there for a long time. Mm. And I really the more I look into all of the research that's around like eating disorders and especially like eating disorders around neurodivergency. Yeah. The research out there is very, very limited. There's not that much. I mean the stuff that, that is there is quite clear mm. in what it says, but it's it's I would I would I was 
going into it thinking there must be huge amounts of evidence to kind of back up what people are doing and how they're being treated and there really isn't no which in comparison to a lot of other you know topics that are researched it just blows my mind how every everyone in these services seems to be so certain as to how to do things when actually there's no certainty about it really no no with autism for example um there's a really strong correlation with um autism and restrictive eating disorders um yeah and there's there's obviously varying data and this isn't an area that i'm fully understand the scientific literature on my computer screen's gone black i'm hoping it hasn't turned my microphone off (laughs) no it hasn't sorry (laughs) i'll start that (laughs) sentence again um yeah, this isn't an area that I, I can fully interpret the science scientific literature on, but from what I can understand, the correlation between um, autism and restrictive eating disorders is extremely high. Um, where there is correlation with, for example, um, autism and gender dysphoria, that's massively overrepresented in the media, presented as a huge problem, a massive deficit, a... It's somehow presented as if autistic people can't understand gender if they're getting gender dysphoria, but there's no parallel suggestion that we should be terribly, terribly worried about autistic people with eating disorders. And I am much more worried about autistic people with Mm. eating disorders than I am worried about autistic trans people if it weren't for the social environment that puts trans people at risk. Um, You know, of, of all of the mental illnesses, um, anorexia has the highest mortality rate. We should be extremely worried about the rates at which autistic young people develop anorexia. Um, And some of the early intervention protocols may not work. Um, There's growing evidence that cognitive behavioural therapy doesn't suit a lot of neurodivergent people. I don't want to overgeneralise, um, but that seems to be the case that a lot of people who don't respond to CBT have a diagnosed or undiagnosed neurodivergence. And I don't know about most areas, but in my area, um, self-guided CBTE is your first step into treatment. Yeah. Um, for me, and whether this was to do with ADHD or where my mental health was at the time, it was catastrophic because I was being asked to change behaviours that I've been leaning on for, at that point, over 20 years without therapy oh the harm Uh, it was horrendous i i got extremely unwell very very quickly um and i did better with cbt with a therapist Mm -hmm. um but i was starting to slip back into old habits within six or seven months um and it really i think the thing that is going to keep things at bay ultimately is probably treating treating my ADHD is actually what's what's done the trick after all of the all of the therapies and all of the interventions um and so whether that's because those of us who are neurodivergent need different treatment pathways or maybe access therapy better when we when the neurodivergence is factored in um obviously with ADHD that can include medication with autism it wouldn't um, it's I don't know, and and as you say, nobody seems to know, because I've been trying to find out, and the research isn't there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the research has gone as far as we know. There's a link, and that's where it stopped. <laughs> yeah, know, it's like it's you know it's really frustrating because it's so important that we need to find out what you know what are people's experiences, what are the kind of therapies that do seem to be more effective you know and also Mm. what should recovery look like as well you know again obviously it's going to be individual but I think I think there's almost this like one size fits all idea of this is what a recovered person looks like and I think that doesn't that just isn't the case you know for, for people um you know that are kind of you know neurodivergent um or you know have other kind of marginalized identities it's not it's not going to look that same way. Like I know there's been, you know, some conversations about things like intuitive eating, for example, Mm -hmm. about how that is going to be quite different, you know, for for people who are neurodivergent compared to someone, you know, who isn't. Um, And that's not to say you can't, you know, apply some of the principles and and, Mm -hmm. and, and all of that. But again, it's, 
it's not this kind of you know we've used the phrase one size fits all but mm. a lot because I think that does eating disorder you know treatment is you know it's for this this kind of you know white thin cisgender neurotypical <laughs> stereotype you know which just doesn't reflect so many people with with eating disorders no and you know whilst the adhd medication is really helping um i don't have very good interoception very good understanding of cues from my body so i will quite often miss for example that i need the loo and i'll sit through a three-hour meeting wondering why i'm really uncomfortable and then suddenly realize when i stand up um i mean that's daft but and doesn't really have an enormous impact on my life but between that and the medication being a hunger suppressant there is a time at about yeah. six o'clock where I have there is still um a significant risk of not binging for emotional control but just because mm -hmm. I'm ravenously hungry because I've yeah. been missing meals or missing snacks so one thing I have found really helpful from the recovery model that I was presented with um, it used uh, Chris Fairburn's Overcoming Binge Eating. Um, and the thing that, of, of the whole book, <laughs> the thing I really stuck with, so I think it's the third chapter, only because I was going through it with someone else fairly recently who was having a tough time, literally setting alarms. It has mm -hmm. been four hours since I ate. If I haven't eaten, I need to eat something. Um, I can't be too rigid about what that is. If I try and introduce too many food rules, I get into difficulty. So sometimes it just is I'm passing the co-op on campus. If there's fresh fruit that I fancy, I will have that. If there's dried fruit I fancy, I will have that. But if I see a chocolate bar first, I mostly need to eat. And being a bit kind of a bit more forgiving and a bit less, um, a bit less rigid about what a snack looks like and what a meal looks like just for the sake of sometimes getting through the day without being so low on fuel I can't function yeah and what um you know if we have kind of you know and I'm sure we will have some kind of healthcare professionals that are mm. listening um that want to do a better job of supporting um you know neurodivergent people what is it that you what is it that they need to be doing to to support you yeah it's it's because this is all still quite new I'm still in the stage of thinking the main thing that could have been done we've already said is more screening yeah. um, if you've got young yeah. people coming to you presenting with perfectionism compulsion high anxiety um, impulsivity the a lot of I think particularly GPs and um, more generalist mental health practitioners are nervous about screening for neurodivergence and neurotypical parents or parents who believe they're neurotypical can often react quite negatively to the idea that they've been raising a neurodivergent person because we still have this idea um blame what's his face and the lancet and the that autism is a deficit or that adhd is a deficit um you know the the social model of disability tells me that it's not i'm not the problem but I'm in a minority in a society that's set up against me. And that's true about my sexuality yeah. and it's true about my neurodivergence. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, sometimes just being asked is really helpful. Um, but knowing things like that, um, if somebody says that they're taking ADHD medication and they're binging at a certain time in the evening, have a conversation with the ADHD service if you've got one locally or the mental health team, whoever it is who's locally qualified to prescribe ADHD meds, because most GPs cannot, um, and just talk to them about, is, is this something that's going on with their medication? Do they need to be referred back to you? Is this something I can manage? And I know GPs are hugely stressed, and what I have reached for is quite a labour-intensive thing. So I suppose the small thing is just ask, just, you know, do you know what this is? Do you know what's going on? Um, it can be really unhelpful to have a doctor say, what do you want from me? But as long as they're also prepared to hear, I don't know you're the doctor. It's not mm. a reasonable question. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is, is yes, healthcare professionals are stressed, but that's the system. That's not your problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it is job to, to, you know, provide adequate um, you know, support and, and mm. signposting. And it sounds like what you're saying is just things need more just joined up you know people need to be speaking to each other <laughs> you know yeah 
um and like you were saying about you know with kind of other kind of mental health you know issues that you were um you know dealing with it makes sense for every, you know everyone to be you know working together and, and and communicating and obviously you being part of that that conversation as well you know um I'm sure make things you know hopefully more just streamlined and um you know for everyone and, and hopefully mean that you know people aren't waiting as long as as you did for you know for support um and I think also believing what people say about themselves has a goes a long way yes. so you know if I can think of a conversation I had with one GP um actually two have just come to mind one was that they wanted to talk to me about my weight and I said at the time I was still running I walk now because I keep I've had a couple of ankle fractures and I've never got the stability back um but I was running sort of 21 odd miles a week at one point but I was the size and shape I am now which is small and round um by my own definition and I'm comfortable with that uh, moderately but um I mean maybe other people can't say it but I can um and and because of how I look it doesn't take long for a GP to ask if I've ever thought about quote unquote managing my weight and um and one doctor asked and I said oh well I'm you know I'm doing this much exercise and they said well your blood pressure's fine let's not worry about it um but I can remember another conversation which was when I was trying to get a referral to the local eating disorder center and it was like the GP just forgot what conversation we've been having. And hand on the doorknob, he suddenly said, oh, there's a there's a note on here that I should be talking to you about your weight. And I, I thought for a second he was joking because we just had quite a difficult 10 minute conversation about about my needs in relation to food, weight and shape and my mental health. And um, and I said something noncommittal and he was like, no, no, really, we need to talk about this. It's a problem. And I, I don't remember what I said. I remember I got out of there as quickly as possible and have refused to talk to that GP ever since. If I'm offered an appointment with him, I just don't take it. Um, that is crazy. Phone call when I was in a mental health crisis and I couldn't control who phoned and it was equally dreadful. So um, it oh may just goodness. be that he's not a great example of the profession. But but it just blew my mind that that like mm. seeing that flag on the system totally overrode everything else. Yeah. Uh, yeah and it, it just shows there it just shows the lack of knowledge that's within mm. um, the medical profession right now and I, I know obviously um beat has been doing quite a lot of work especially with um trainee doctors to be able to um help with the knowledge and eating disorders but mm. this is this is where obviously me and emma kind of started the problem yeah. with that is is that their views are anti-fat so yeah. i don't necessarily believe that the work that they're doing right now would mean that a doctor would actually separate the two which is what they should be doing they should be going okay so we have someone in here who is in a large body and who is talking about you know something that could be disordered eating eating disorder but something that definitely needs exploring yeah um but I shouldn't be talking about their weight, but I'm going to talk about their weight because obviously that is a problem. And it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, but I suppose I haven't been through, I haven't been through like obviously medical education, which mm. just drills into, I remember um, Asha talking about the way that, you know, patients when you're studying are referred to as, as a BMI, you have a patient wow. in front of you, their BMI is, x y and z and that is just how they have case studies and i remember having very similar case studies in my nutrition degree and it was automatically given it didn't matter um what kind of thing we were supposed to be looking at whether it was you know um deficiencies we were trying to be looking for or trying to look for other bits you know all, all these other bits and pieces you can look for no the first thing is that it, it's a man or a woman and that person's BMI as if that was something that had a massive, massive, massive kind of, Mm. um, you know, thing with their diagnosis and how you should treat a person, which I just, I don't know. I could tell you from a family photo what my body would look like when I grew up. I look like my aunt, I look like my grandmother. Mm-hmm. you know and, yeah. and we're all and, and some of them have had some people in my family have had weight fluctuations over the years including me 
most of us have settled to the kind of size and shape I am. Yeah. And and in some ways, I used to really worry about that because I don't know why. I don't know why I, why that caused me anxiety. But now I look at it and think, oh, well, that just speaks to something really important about heredity. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if if all of these adults in my life who've got 20, 25 years on me have worked that hard to not look the way I look and they still do, am I prepared to spend another 20 years of my life resenting the fact that this is what I look like? And to the credit of the the therapist who worked with me at the Eating Disorder Centre, who, despite the limitations of the treatment, was really compassionate and really excellent. He once said to me, well, if you don't want to lose weight, then you just need to start thinking of this as being as much part of you as your shoe size. Said, you know, would you judge yourself for your shoe size? If... um, and I mean, they they were, and I suspect this was part of the model they were expected to follow. There was a sense of, you know, when you're a little bit further in the recovery journey, Weight Watchers would be an option, um, which was unpleasant and a little insidious. But I think that was a cultural thing and not something mm-hmm. that he was necessarily even consciously doing. Mm-hmm. Because when we actively talked about it, it was much more neutral. Um, and I've had some really good experiences I was talking to a pharmacist recently because I have to have checkups on my ADHD medication. She's based in the GP surgery and they're supposed to check your weight because my medication can make you lose weight. Nothing makes me lose weight. So I'm fine. Um, And so she asked for my weight and I said, I don't usually share my weight. And I explained why. Um, But I said, you know, I've done the reading and it seems that you'd be worried about me losing weight. And I can tell you I fit in the same clothes I fit into in January and I have no anxiety. And she just said, "Okay, I'll write that down. And I was flabbergasted because when, usually when I try that, I get, that's nice, dear, get on the scales. So when listen to you. I was, you know, yeah, yeah, blew my mind. I had a similar experience with a nutritionist when I stopped being scared of taking a nutritionist referral. I was worried I was slipping back into disordered eating behaviour. I'd started using Noom, uh, not a diet, you'll note. It, it's a diet, sorry. You can't it's very much a my diet. Yeah. It's yeah. a horrible diet. And some of the stuff that Noom teaches has got stuck in my head as horrible, slightly disordered food rules, which is what tells me it's a diet. Mm. Um, but um, so I went to see a GP and said, you know, I'm, I'm worried that if I carry on down this path, I'm going to end up in in this horrible, disordered eating place. And I don't really know what to do. And she said, well, let's talk to a nutritionist because you never have. And what I'd be worried about is, have you learned to fuel your body? And I put it off and put it off and put it off. And eventually we had a phone call because it was during COVID. And I was so relieved it was a phone call because I wouldn't feel judged. Um, And she started by asking my BMI and I said, I didn't know. And she said, okay, and moved on. I was like, sorry, what? (laughs) I expected her to say, oh, well, I'll just go away and look it up on your record. Or, well, can can you give me a rough guess? What did you weigh last time? But she just said, "Okay, well, if that's not what we're here to talk about, what do you need to talk about? Um, And and what emerged from the conversation is that I was broadly eating the things I should be eating a bit too much sugar and not quite enough fiber. That seems to be the story of everybody in this country at the moment. We all have a bit too much sugar and not quite enough fiber. Um, But I was expecting that I ate horribly because I've had this whole thing all my life of like, you know, you mustn't have sugar. Um, sometimes I get told off at home for having orange juice for breakfast if it had because it had sugar in or too much bread or something, depending on what the local family food rule was in the day. Um, and I so I just expected to be berated. Um, and actually, it turns out when I'm paying attention, when I'm well, um, when I'm able to eat regularly, I do know what to do and I do know how to eat. And that was a bit mind blowing because I just assumed I couldn't do it. Tell you what, the majority of people that come to me mm. um, for nutrition, that's just general nutrition, mm. um, with no kind of symptoms or no issues or anything like that, who just basically, a lot of people just actually want to have that kind of reassurance. Like, am mm. I actually eating okay? Because there's just so much contradicting rubbish mm. out there that Mm. just gets stuck in your head of what you should and what you shouldn't eat and what's good and bad for you and you know all of these other kind of rules that you take on from 
these diet culture places and then I sit there and I kind of ask them and go through like a recall of what they've had and write it down and go actually you know what you're fine mm. <laughs> like you you could probably like you said you could probably eat a bit more fiber fiber would be a really good thing to have let's have a look at your fish consumption how do you feel about oily fish and that generally very very i'm obviously i'm generalizing here mm. to a, you know a lot of a lot of people that generally is right but i think when you've got um diets like we've got right now and what we have had for obviously for years and years and years the same thing that we go on and on that, that well that marketing goes on about you know if you do this diet plan and you spend all this money this is really easy you know it's going to be the last diet you ever do when you're mm-hmm. going to lose the weight you're going to keep it off for the rest of your life and you know internalizing all of that and all the rubbish and then as someone actually who is just realistic i think i think and there's there's plenty of us who can sit there and, and do the same thing and just be like actually what you're doing let's mm. just add some tweaks and it's okay and i think if more people experience that then i think well, not even if more people experience that i think if diet culture was actually just doesn't exist which would be <laughs> like the dream it's never going to happen but we would have obviously not as many people who have disordered eating or mm. have eating disorders or you know, if we could have a system where people could have like a checkup with a dietitian or a nutritionist when they feel as if they need that kind of thing, imagine having that reassurance mm. way before, you know, starting on, you know, disordered eating or eating disorders, like going down that path and even realizing, because obviously you don't realize for a long time that you're actually stuck in disordered eating or an eating disorder. Yeah. Sometimes, you know you could be doing that like you said for like decades you mm. know decades mm. and decades not even mm. realize it but imagine if you could get that reassurance like really easily on the nhs that would be like something that would be so helpful i mean there's so many things that could be so more help so much more helpful mm. than the nhs yeah. could do to be honest and i think one of the things that they should be doing is really taking into account i mean obviously neurodivergency mm. which has been a, a massive barrier for the uk doesn't it Mm. as well as obviously um the size of a person as well which can be a massive barrier in the form of medical weight stigma if we actually had people who who were more trained ultimately or at least more compassionate then there'd be much less people who are really struggling right now yeah i remember reading i think it's in the introduction to joshua walrick's food isn't medicine where he says, as a GP, I don't have nutrition training, completely blew my mind because I've been absentmindedly taking nutrition advice from GPs for years. Yeah. If a GP says, oh, don't worry about it, have a bit of protein with your breakfast and you'll feel full for the day, real example, I'd do it because I'm like, oh, well, yeah. a doctor has told me. But then it becomes a rule because a doctor yeah. has told me and it's a rule and it, and it would get fed into the cycle. It's not their fault that I twisted and distorted that. Um, but it's much easier to put something down if you know it's not okay. So I did a lot of research into ADHD before asking about diagnosis. Again, I think you don't necessarily need to because seeking diagnosis is simply asking a question, but it's treated as though you're making a presumption. Um, And there's a lot of gatekeeping. And particularly because I have a diagnosis of personality disorder, that was considered to account for enough. Um, And the ADHD service on the NHS rejected rejected me initially um, because my parents' account of my childhood didn't quite map onto mine. Turned out they slightly filled in the form wrong. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that was that was just a done deal. There wasn't any negotiation. And my GP put a note in saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm inclined to agree. And it was only because I'd read something on the internet that said very clearly, your GP can't diagnose ADHD, which means they can't diagnose you as not ADHD. That was the only reason I then continued to pursue that and was able to find another pathway to diagnosis because someone had taken the time to write down your GP doesn't know everything. And it sounds like a silly thing, but I think we do slightly put GPs on pedestals. And that's partly the cause of how stressed and upset they get and how much pressure is on GPs. 
that actually we do think that they can solve everything because those of us who've grown up with a well-funded NHS, which, you know, long may it last, um, have got used to the idea that that's, it started as your first port of call, but then in my lifetime, specialist services have got so squeezed that you've got used to your GP being able to prescribe antidepressants or tell you whether or not you need therapy. And they're not, that's not really what the system was set up for. That's not the fault of any individual GP. But I think sometimes understanding the limitations of medical training as best we can as lay folk would also really help. Um, and being able to occasionally push back and say, no, I really think I need this. Or, and seeing a second doctor um, can sometimes help. I was having some menstrual difficulties and I absolutely classic thing. And in my regular GP's defense, he got to it at the same time I did. Just as I was about to ask if I could please speak to a female doctor, he referred me to one. Forgive me for using female in a slightly reductive sense there. Um, but it made a huge difference. As soon as I saw a doctor who menstruates, um, I got a completely different outcome and a much more urgent referral for what was needed. Um, there's all of this stuff that, and it gets all so muddled up and so messy and Oh, I don't know there's so much going on <laughs> yeah. that's the problem it all intersects all of these oppressions intersect and um, whilst usually misogyny is a huge factor in medicine actually I think in some ways women fare better in eating disorder treatment I dread to think what would have happened if I was a man trying to get an eating disorder diagnosis in my situation yeah yeah well I think like you were saying though with kind of neurodivergence I think still you know women are still you know underrepresented and you know right. underdiagnosed and so uh, you know um yeah tricky but i think you know like what you said i think it's really highlights the importance of you know treating people as individuals you know not mm -hmm. as their diagnosis not as their bmi you know not as any of these labels or, or, or anything treating a person and like you were saying, you know, believing what they're what they're saying to you, because as we talked about earlier, there is very very limited research when it comes to things like neurodivergence. So lived experiences are always important, but are you know when we have no science, they are literally all we have, you know, um, and need to be you know really fully you know acknowledged. And I hope you know that healthcare professionals listening take that on board. And I think you know what you shared about advocating as well again you shouldn't have to but clearly mm. is needed within the current system the way it is and hopefully there's anyone listening that is you know considering you know seeking you know thinks they have kind of you know adhd or you know autistic um you know feels you know i think you've given some different kind of tools and things that people can do to try and you know kind of push push for that and you know get the get the support that they that they deserve you know yeah and i'm i'm think i've heard a lot of people getting similar responses from their gp which sort of why are all these women in their 30s currently asking me about autism and adhd because we're mates <laughs> one of my friends calls it diagnosis by friendship group it's like a pack of dominoes somebody gets an adhd diagnosis and everyone else in their friendship group goes wait that's not a personality trait or that's not normal in inverted mm. commas um you know it's the same reason there tend to be communities of people with mental health conditions or um although hospital is a dreadful place people talk about making really strong connections in hospital different neurotypes we find each other and that includes sort of personality neurodivergence um specific learning challenges all of that stuff um we do tend to find our people so yeah um, it's, it seems to be a bit of a joke in the neurodivergent community, but actually diagnosis by friendship group or diagnosis by coping mechanism, at least, you know, um, con consideration. I should probably say screening or consideration, really. But, you know, a lot of people in the neurodivergent community think self-diagnosis is valid. It just mm -hmm. doesn't fit the medical model. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, representation is, is so important, you know. Um, because I think you know when it comes to neurodivergent it's been so so narrow in terms of mm. the, the representation it's been you know you know definitely kind of male and, and a, a very specific type of presentation you know I think yeah. 
always think of like essentially the film Rain Man, right? Mm-hmm. And the Dog in the Nighttime. I think those are the basically the, <laughs> yeah. the historically the representations of, you know, I mean, again, both of those cases, autism. But, you know, it, it just demonstrates how, how narrow it has been. And clearly that, you know, while that may represent some people with autism, it's going to be, you know, um, a minority of, 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 of people with, you know, with, um, neurodivergent so and interestingly Mark Haddon who wrote Curious Incident points out that he never says that uh, Christopher the young boy is autistic the readers have put that on there and it's become an autism book he never says he's autistic interesting interesting. I did not know that Uh, I'd have to reread it but I saw that in an interview and, and thought that that was it makes it a really useful illustration of what we're talking about because you know um and i mean who knows the i it's up to the reader i suppose and it's okay for a reader to read that uh character as autistic but um how we read a character says a lot about ourselves Mm. and our society yeah yeah interesting I think someone was giving him a bit of a hard time about that as a one-dimensional representation of autism, and that oh, was God. that was why he pointed it out. But um, I'd have to go back and reread it. I haven't read the book for the longest time. Yeah, I've read it, and I, I saw the there's a stage uh, uh, version mm-hmm. of it as well. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I think it has been. I think yeah, like say maybe like not the book, but I'm. I think it has, yeah, like you say, been assumed. And I think in some mm. of the literature describing the, the the book or, you know, in, in reviews and, and things has, yeah, been, been assumed. But that's, yeah. It's I mean, it's a very good read. I think I should get that book out again to read it again. Yeah, I mean, we de- yeah, we definitely need, well, more more books about, uh, you know, um, written by people who are... Um, uh, you know, neurodivergent. I wonder, Kate, have you um, come across any books um, that oh, are, are written by, you know, um, people with ADHD that have been helpful for you? Um, I, recommend, or? I've been trying, but in a year of having ADHD, I haven't had the focus to read <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> I just... No, I've... Um, that makes a lot of sense. I have a list of, of books recommended by other neurodivergent people, which I'm, I'm just digging out. Um, Devon Price has come up on neurodivergence. Um, they are, I believe they have at least an autism diagnosis. They may have autism and ADHD and write from a lived experience. Um, and yeah, they they almost always show up. Laziness doesn't exist is the one I've got about a chapter and a half into before burning out and then telling myself it's fine because laziness doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, and I read their book um, Unmasking Autism recently, which was absolutely fantastic. Was it a good one? Yeah, really good and filled with lived experiences, which was fantastic to see. see um, I, love, I, I love all of these because, I mean, when I train, because my, other than being a nutritionist I'm trained as a teacher as well Mm. and you would be surprised at the lack of training that I got for um, children who are neurodivergent we just caught we just got told that we have a list and the list is our SEN list the special Mm. special educational needs list um and we got told that these children should come with a like a teaching assistant or a learning support assistant and those are the people to help them and you've obviously got to um you know change your lesson plan or adapt what they're going to be doing or you know do something to be able to help them within the classroom but we've Mm. never actually got told what would be useful we've just got told this is what you need to do and just work it out yourself so that's as a student teacher and also a new teacher and then across like my teaching career most of my time that I could grab was spent going, okay, so how can I help each, obviously reading their profiles, but how can I help a child who is autistic? How can I help another child? And obviously depending on their age, because obviously it changes yeah. depending on their ages as well. And um, it just blows my mind how little training really mm. I received as someone who, you know, who is an educator of mm. a lot of people. Um, 
but I feel that kind of reflects uh, I think that reflects what we're receiving in training across the country not just in healthcare as well as in education I just really feel that there's not enough work being done for people who are, are neurodivergent and mm. this is where a lot of the marginalization is happening because you know as as much as people want to try and help other people and be as compassionate as possible if you're not aware if you don't have the training if you're not mm. given the time and the training to be able to kind of work all of this out then we're not doing well enough for people and we all need to be doing better yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know people should see learning as like a continual thing you know i i think too often people think all oh, right got the got the qualification tick done yeah. you know and it should be you know an ongoing process of continually learning you know um you know particularly from you know people with, with lived experiences and i i wish Definitely. that was much more of a kind of practice and actually almost um like mandated you know as oh. part of people's like continuing kind of education um to, to do that because it's so important like you say Jeanette to, to ensure that everyone gets you know the appropriate you know access and support and things that they that they deserve you know um it's not asking for special treatment it's it's asking it's literally just about you know fairness and giving you know people what what they what they need and and accommodating preferences you know everyone deserves that that's why using the term special educational needs doesn't necessarily sit right with me but that's Mm. another conversation Mm. (laughs) because that could be a really long one yeah (laughs) have a whole conversation about the word special (laughs) oh Um, my goodness we really could couldn't we I um I mentioned the intersection between autism and um trans identities earlier and there is a really mm. good book uh, Jessica Kingsley publishing have done a lot of really good have published a lot of really good stuff on this lately there's one called working with autistic transgender and non-binary people um edited by uh Marianthi Corti which has really good mix of uh, what well, the subtitle is research practice and experience so it brings together everything you were talking about, what research exists, what good practice is out there and what does the lived experience tell us? And a lot of it is written by uh, neurodivergent um, scientists, which is really oh, important because there's too too much of a divide at the moment between lived experience and science, as if scientists are objective and mm. lived experience is never scientific or never valuable. Mm. So I, I wanted to drop that in since we'd alluded to it because um, it's an emerging area of study and books that don't treat either trans or neurodivergence as a deficit are sadly still quite rare. I'm going to add that to my library. That sounds like absolute essential reading, to be honest. Yeah. The other book just on my um, my wishes to read is uh, called Neurotribes as well. I don't know if you're... Yeah, I've I've heard good things about it. Um, yeah. The I did... I, so I was looking these up for someone the other day and I did see some feedback on Neurotribes that said, this was an autistic reviewer, said, you can tell that the writer is neurotypical, but they've done all right, despite that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Divergent Mind was the other one that I have um, on my list uh, by Janara Nerenberg, which um, I think it was the subtitle and the cover, frankly, that appealed to me. It's very brightly coloured. The subtitle is Thriving in a World that Wasn't Designed for You. So it's a real social model approach to all forms of neurodivergence, so in- including um, things like dyslexia, sensory processing, um, disorder synesthesia, things like that, that aren't necessarily going to be diagnosed as neurodivergence but definitely exist in the same spectrum I hadn't realized until recently how much of dyslexia is nothing to do with reading I'm not dyslexic I didn't I don't have an experience of it I didn't realize how much of it was about organization social interaction all of the things that I have learned to associate with ADHD so um, again it's kind of I suppose it's an outsider perspective but we have tended to reduce things to Dyslexic people struggle with reading, dyscalculic people struggle with maths, but all of these things have a very complicated knock-on effect on a person's whole world um, and are increasingly being brought under the neurodivergence umbrella because of the correlating experience. 
again, there's absolutely no research on body image and eating disorders in specific learning difficulty, as far as I know. But it's it could be very interesting to see how that develops. Could yeah, be. that could be really interesting. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all those recommendations. I think you know, I think that's going to be so helpful um, for our listeners as well to be able to really sink their teeth into some extra learning, some extra reading, which is always really useful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for that. I mean, I think it's probably a perfect time really to wrap up after mm. like that absolutely essential list that you've given us. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you so much for everything that you shared today. I think this is a, you know, really, really important um, conversation. Um, And, you know, we've covered a lot of things that just don't, don't get talked about enough. I appreciate you making the space. um, And I know I'm not the only one. So thank you. Thank you so much. I think we really need, I think we probably, we need to do more than one episode in you know people's experiences mm-hmm. with eating disorders and neurodivergency so if anyone is listening right now and um you know feels like they'd really like to get in touch with me and emma please do get in touch um so you can share us your experience just by typing out if you'd like and if that's the way that you would prefer or you can definitely come on to the podcast as well we need more voices to be speaking and so you know people can really hear experiences and understand that you know there is you're not alone and Mm. there's so many people who feel so lonely in their experiences and to be able to help people with that is what we are here for to be able to explore that and give give you that space and that really safe space to be able to do that so thank you so much for starting off this conversation that we are hoping we'll be able to continue on with multiple people it's just so important yeah absolutely and like you said as well so you know if you're someone that has ADHD autism and you don't have a clinical diagnosis you're self-diagnosed that's absolutely fine so Mm -hmm. don't let that hold you back from reaching out if you if you'd like to share your experiences